The following message was recorded as part of the morning worship celebration of Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church in Eatonton, Georgia. More information about the ministries, staff, and worship offerings of Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church can be found on our website at www.lopc-pca.org. Our text this morning is found in Colossians, the second chapter, and verses 6 through 7. If you uh, didn't bring a Bible with you, there should be a blue Bible in the P-Rack in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, I'd actually just invite you to take that home uh, with you. We have, we have plenty of extras, and um, we really uh, want you to have the Word of God in your possession uh, that you can take home with you and see the glorious good news of Jesus Christ. Colossians 2, 6-7, through 7, I'm going to invite you to stand uh, in honor of God's Word as we read this portion from Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. Paul says this, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, you have spoken to us through your Son. Let your written word now be spoken and heard by each of us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand that we may not refuse your calling or ignore your voice. May may we all be taught through your powerful word. Bring our every thought captive to obeying Christ. For the glory of your holy name we ask it. Amen. Be seated if you would. As a young man, I was blessed to have wonderful grandparents. My mom and dad's folks who lived 10 minutes away from my parents' house. Some of you who live really close to your grandkids, you understand what a special privilege this is to be able to get a phone call, hear um, the invitation to come over for dinner, and pop over, or pick them up from school, or watch them on a weeknight. My grandparents this month are celebrating my grandfather's 89th and my grandmother's 90th birthday. It's actually my grandmother's 90th birthday today. So I thought uh, in her honor, um, I'll tell a little story about her. Well, it's sort of about her. What I really want to do is tell you a story about a dog named Lady. Now, Lady wasn't always her name, you see. Uh, Lady was a sweet, loving golden retriever. Any of you that have ever had experiences with golden retrievers, you understand these dogs are hardwired to love. They don't know anything different. Now, this dog, Lady, wasn't originally my grandparents' dog. She belonged to the neighbor. It was probably the neighbor succumbing to some pressure by the grandkids 
to get a dog so that when they came over, they'd have someone to play with. But the neighbors didn't very much care for the dog. And what happened was Lady, not her name then, was chained up on a tree out in the backyard and lived in the backyard chained to a tree. Her life was a 20-foot radius of that tree. Now, my grandmother, you understand, um, has a bleeding heart for animals. And so every now and again, she would sneak over with a treat in hand and pet the dog and give her a treat and throw a little ball so that she could kind of run around. And she was great. But every night she stayed locked up on that chain. Even when thunderstorms came, she was just kind of out there in the rain. Well, at one point, the neighbors saw my grandmother sneaking over now what was multiple times a day to give this dog some affection. And they said, you know what? You like her so much, you could probably give her a much better home than we're going to. So why don't you keep her? And so they did. And they changed her name to Lady. And they gave her a home. And it was really interesting was even though she was allowed to be an inside dog, she was allowed to have a bed and, and everything else. There was still something in her that could never really shake or forget that time on the tree. And every time my grandfather would go and pick up the newspaper and kind of shake the paper to open it and get the creases out, she would duck and she would cower. New home. Loving family. But she still couldn't ever shake the memory of the newspaper and who she was. Now, why do I tell you this story? Truthfully, I see a lot of myself in that dog's life. And maybe you do too. You've been given a new name in Jesus. A name that only he knows. You've been given a new identity in Christ. And yet, what happens? Something rattles you. Something shakes you. And all of a sudden, you're prone to forget who you are. You go right back to that place of who you used to be. And then you feel guilty about it. You see, Christians, a lot of times, have what I would call gospel amnesia. They forget they've been freed. They forget they've been adopted. They forget they've been loved. They forget that they've been fully and completely forgiven in Christ. What do they do? They cover up, right? You remember what Adam and Eve did in the garden as soon as they figured out they were naked? They ran and hid. They were ashamed. God said, where are you? We're hiding. Why? We're naked. Who told you? We figured it out. Why is a sermon like this necessary? Why do we need to deal with what Paul says? Look at what he says in the text. Therefore, as you received Christ the Lord, so walk in him. What I want to propose to you this morning is what God, what, what Paul is saying here is that the gospel is actually circular, right? It takes us all the way back to square one all the time. The way you receive Christ, so walk in him. You know, I read a quote by um, a guy named John Piper. You've heard Joe and I quote him before. 
It's not popular these days to get up and, and say hard things from the pulpit, you know? Certainly doesn't fill a room. No one wants to come and say, yeah, I really want to come and have my entire life dismantled by the guy in the pulpit. It's not an easy way to grow a church that way. It's not an easy way to invite your friends to come and hear really hard things. And I read this quote by Dr. Piper and it struck me. And I I want you to hear what he said. He said, as a pastor, I don't think it's my job to entertain you during these last days. It's not my calling to help you have chipper feelings while the whole creation groans. My job is to put the kind of ballast in your belly of your boat so that when the waves crash against your life, you won't be capsized, but you'll make it to the harbor of heaven. Maybe battered and wounded, but full of faith and joy. So here's the deal, guys. As one of your pastors, I have been called by God and set apart by this church, not always to say easy things, but to say necessary things. So that Dr. Piper's prayer, Paul's prayer, becomes my prayer and becomes my hope for you and I. And that is, we're going to fill our bellies with the good news of the gospel. So that when the hard stuff of life hits, it may beat us up, but it doesn't doesn't throw us under. It may wound us, but it doesn't kill us. And we're going to see each other together in heaven, full of faith and joy. So what am I going to try and talk about this morning? Here's the central premise that I want to talk about. The central premise is, if life and godliness matter for believers who have come to faith in Christ... We must learn to fight sin on God's terms. And we must recognize that we habitually forget what God's terms are. If life and godliness matter for believers who've come to faith in Christ, we must learn to fight sin on God's terms. And we must recognize that we habitually forget what God's terms are. This passage isn't an incredibly complicated passage. Paul's actually pretty straightforward in what he says. And so I want to look at two ideas this morning. And and this idea of a grace-shaped life is the very thing that I was talking about when I was telling you about our home fellowship groups. It's not just that we want you to, to know good things or to understand good things. We want you to live out of these good things. So we want your life to be shaped by the gospel so that your relationships, your decisions, your ethics of what's right and wrong, valuable and not valuable, what you're suspicious of in this world and what you embrace as good of this world are all shaped by the gospel of Jesus. And right here, Paul gives us this roadmap. As you received Christ, so walk in him. What does he say? All this will happen so that we're thankful. Well, how did we receive Christ? A couple things. One, God opened our eyes. God opened our eyes. You remember when Lazarus died and the disciples, uh, I'm sorry, 
the women came to Jesus and said, Lazarus is dead. What did Jesus do? He waited a couple days so that there would be no doubt. Goes to the tomb and calls Lazarus out of the dead. He says, Lazarus, come out. He gets up. He walks. He hawks out of the tomb with the grave clothes still on him. Friends, listen. That was not an isolated incident. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. Paul says in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Look, the grace of the gospel is this. Dead people don't make good decisions. They're dead. Dead people don't say to themselves, get up and walk. They have to be raised from the dead. Listen, if it's true, and the Bible says that it is, that you were dead in your trespasses and your sins, the way that you receive Christ as Lord, as Jesus said to your deaf, dead heart, come alive, get up and walk. Your sins are forgiven. So how do we receive Christ as Lord? Well, the first way is God opened our eyes. He opened our eyes to see who he is. He opened our eyes to see who we are. We're broken, friends. But he doesn't leave us in that broken estate. He rescues us. The Bible also says that God has given us. He has enabled our repentance He has enabled our faith. And he's enabled us to be thankful. Look, Paul says that repentance is a gift of God. If you look at his epistles to Timothy, it actually says God alone grants repentance. So your ability to recognize that you did stuff wrong transgressed against God's holy law is given to you by God. Faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, and you have been saved by grace, not through works. But you have been given faith. It is a gift so that no man may boast. Faith and grace, both gifts of God. And lastly, thanksgiving. God has given you all of this and simply in return asks that you would see him as beautiful, great, and glorious. But as I said earlier, we sometimes have gospel amnesia, don't we? We're sometimes prone to forget these things. You know, it's fall. Football season is starting back. It's very exciting. For those of you who don't follow football, that's okay. There's another exciting thing that happens in the fall. The fall television pilots start, right? The networks try and find what new show is going to be the next big thing to bring in all the advertising dollars so that they can pay their bills. I don't know about you, but I have grown increasingly wary of getting looped into new shows. Now, part of it is because, you know, I just think it's somewhere along the line, Hollywood just lost its imagination. Everybody's just recycling everybody else's old idea. And that's certainly part of it. 
There's a, uh, there's a website out called Brilliant But Canceled. Here's the sad news for my life. More often than not, the shows that I like are all listed on that website. <laughs> oh, this had such promise. Oh, it was canceled after five episodes. And after a certain amount of time, you just sort of lose the heart to get involved in a new show because, you know, why get invested in it? They're just going to cancel it anyway. Don't we sometimes mistakenly approach the Christian life the same way? We don't view God as for us in the long run. We view God as trying us out in a pilot season to see how well we work out. And the option to get picked back up for a second or third or fourth season. We'll see how the ratings come in. I don't know about you, but I struggle with that. What I have to remember, friends, is that when Jesus died for my sins, when Jesus said he loved me, Jesus didn't die for some better version of me. He died for the broken, messed up version of me that he knows the depths of. Jesus now doesn't love some better version of you that got your act together. Jesus loves you as you are. Because of his finished work and his righteousness given for you, that is what makes him say, you're mine. Take my life, it's yours. Take my righteousness, it's yours. Take my inheritance, it's yours. Friends, look at the great gift that we have been given in Christ Jesus, our Lord. How do we apply this? So thanksgiving is the goal of the Christian life, right? Paul said that you would be rooted, established, built up in the faith, abounding in thanksgiving. And so what are some ways that you can do a heart check and see if thanksgiving is really there or not? And I want to propose to you what I've seen true in my life, which is to the degree that I lose sight of what God has done for me is the degree that my thankfulness diminishes. The degree to which I lose sight of what God has done for me in Christ is the degree to which my thanksgiving diminishes. So let me define what J.C. Ryle, who was uh, an Anglican bishop, uh, long considered to be one of the stalwarts of the faith in the English Reformation said about humility. And I think you'll see where I'm going with this. Do you want to know the root and spring of humility? One word describes it. The root of humility is right knowledge. The person who really knows himself in his own heart, who knows God in his infinite majesty and holiness who knows Christ and the price at which he was redeemed, that person will never be a proud person. That person will never be a proud person. 
He will count himself like Jacob, unworthy of the least of all God's mercies. He will say of himself like Job, I am unworthy. He will cry like Paul, I am the worst of sinners. He will consider others better than himself. The root of thankfulness, as Paul would construct it here, is humility. The root of thankfulness is to continually, daily be awed by what Jesus has done for his people. And because of that, daily being fed by that truth and his spirit and so worshiping him that you would never even think about anything but gratitude for the gospel, gratitude for God's faithfulness, gratitude for God's goodness. And that that would then overflow to your relationships with other people in your life. But we need to dig a little bit deeper. The command to walk with Jesus as Lord is nothing different than a command to return to where faith began. Our continued faith is not faith in itself. You don't have faith in faith. You have faith in Jesus, a real person who is actually really, truly, honestly, bodily, physically reigning and ruling at God's right hand even now. It is also not a mentality that says, okay, my faith means that I do more and try harder. Nope, it's not it either. In fact, the way to continued faithfulness The way to see your life lived out the way Paul talks about it here in Colossians 2, 6 through 7. Is a heart full of gratitude that finds its assurance in the truth that the way we grow is not tightening our grip on Jesus, but boasting and resting in his grip of us. That's the way you were saved, wasn't it? You said, Jesus, help. And he grabs you. You will not be more saved, more loved, more cherished, or more accepted at any point in your life than you are right now. So then how do you see fruit born in your life? You know, we are, um, I say we, that's sort of the royal we, that's code for Jen, are trying to tend a garden in our backyard. I support it by saying, good job, honey. You know what we've found? Gardening's hard. Again, we being the royal we, it's her. To get cucumbers and tomatoes and squash to grow, my goodness, she's out there every day doing battle against the cutworms that are trying to dismantle her tomato plant, doing battle against the fungus that's trying to take down her squash, trying to get the tomatoes off before the birds come in and have their fill. It's hard work. And so why should, with Paul using gardening analogies here, rooted, built up, established, why should we then expect the Christian life to be any different? Why should we expect the Christian life to be just sort of a set it and forget it? You remember that infomercial for the little rotisserie thing, set it and forget it? That's not the Christian life. So how do we do, what 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 does pruning look like in our lives? And this is where I want to dig into some application here. 
Remember earlier I said God granted us repentance? God granted us faith? God enables our thanksgiving. Well, I think in the church, we have a a really misguided understanding of what repentance is. Here's what I mean by that. Um, Repentance, we confuse for the medieval Catholic uh, understanding of the word penance. Right? We confuse repentance for penance. Listen to what... um, Martin Luther said in his 95 Theses, which he nailed to the door on the church in Wittenberg in 1517. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers be one of repentance. He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And so this is the second thing that I want to think about this morning, and I want to think about it through a way that, you know, we've been preaching about the fruit of the Spirit. So I want to look at fruit from the cultivation side now. And so a grace-shaped life is a life that is bearing fruit because of the gospel. How is the garden cultivated? I'm going to say that one of the primary ways that we return to the way that we receive Christ as Lord is through repentance. But we need to deal with this This thing that happens in the church all the time, which is false repentance. Let me tell you what I mean by that. We have become skilled, and I'm, I'm right there at the top of the list. I mean, expert at false repentance. Listen, we think that repentance is something that's done for really bad things. Okay? So when you really mess up, eh, then we got to repent. Like I said a moment ago, we confuse repentance with penance. And so when we sin, we think that we should feel really, really sorry about it, beat ourselves up over it, and do something to make up for it. Right? And this is why sin is a really unpopular thing to talk about in the church. Because every time we talk about sin, gosh... I feel guilty enough about it. Now you got to make me put words to it? In other words, listen to how we distort this. Repentance often becomes more about us than it does about God. And it becomes more about us than it is the people that we've sinned against. So we view repentance as a way to feel better and for things to be back to normal. Now, most all of us, look, we're all guilty of this. This is what we do. This is how we have constructed the idea of repentance in our lives. So how do we then break the cycle? How do we become um, uh, exposed and recovering practitioners of false repentance? Well, first of all, we look for patterns in our lives. And the first pattern is look for patterns of remorse, Such as, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I did that. Well, what's wrong with that? You know what it does? It gives away a pattern of thinking where you actually think too highly of yourself. Remember what Ryle said in the quote that I read earlier about humility? What J.C. Ryle said was, a humble person will truly know the depths of their own wickedness. 
A humble person will really know the depths of God's grace. And so when you sit there and say, I can't believe I did that. What you're actually doing is revealing that you're not willing to honestly engage that, you know what, this is who we really are. It shows that self-righteousness has crept into the equation because what you're actually saying is, no, this isn't what I'm really like. I'm not really like that. That was a, that was an anomaly. That was a, that was just a, a, a silly, isolated incident. That's not really me. Well, that is. Absolutely. I would say that all of us at any given point understand about 4% of the depths of our sinfulness. <laughs> Thank God that Jesus sees it all and loves us just the same. Anyway, the second, so the second pattern to look for in our lives is patterns of resolution. And what do I mean by that? I promise I will do better next time. This will not happen again. I'm going to do better next time. Well, what does that reveal? Guys, listen. This gives away a pattern of thinking where we think incorrectly about our own ability. Remember, our ability to repent, gift of God. Our ability to have faith, gift of God. Our ability to have thanksgiving, gift of God. Catch the pattern? And so to say, you know what? I got it. You're right. I screwed up, but I'm going to do better next time. Well, maybe. But... Don't think that highly of your ability. The patterns of false repentance taint our attitudes towards others. Because we think so highly of ourselves, we respond to others' sin with harshness and disapproval. Can't believe they did that. Look at them falling down again. But look, we're extremely lenient towards ours. Towards theirs, how dare you? Towards us, hey, honest mistake. I'll do it better next time. Right? And because we think that we can change ourselves, we're frustrated when other people aren't changing themselves faster. Because we think we can change ourselves, we then get frustrated that other people aren't getting their act together sooner. This could be a whole separate sermon on our marriages, couldn't it, guys? Why can't my wife just get her act together? Honestly. Because I can't get my act together. True repentance stems from a proper understanding of the gospel. Let me give you four principles here. Four principles about how true repentance stems from an understanding of the gospel. First, it's oriented towards God and not me. Look at what David says in Psalm 51 verse 4. Turn there with me if you would. Psalm 51, verse 4. What does David say? Against who? Against you and you only have I sinned. And so the first element of biblical repentance is repentance is oriented towards God. God is the offended party. It's not oriented towards us. Secondly, I won't go to this reference, but I'll give it to you. It's motivated by true godly sorrow and not just selfish regret. Look at later this afternoon. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. 
2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. Thirdly, it's concerned with the heart, not just external actions. Look at what David says in Psalm 51, just a few verses down. He says in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David doesn't want his actions changed first because he knows that changing his actions doesn't get to the root of the problem. And remember in our text, Paul is saying that we would be rooted in the faith. And so what is the root of the problem? The root of the problem is our hearts. And David is saying, God, create in me a clean heart. And lastly, another reference to look at later, Acts 3, verses 19 through 20. True repentance looks to Jesus for deliverance from the penalty and power of sin. So let's, let's bring this thing in for a landing here. Let's summarize. False repentance brings us into a pattern of remorse and resolution. Can't believe I did that. I'll try harder next time. Gospel repentance moves us to realize, yep, this is who I really am, and repent. Lord, forgive me. You are my only hope. So a couple practical applications of this as we think about being established in the faith, abounding in thanksgiving. We're going to stop being surprised by our sin so that we're able to honestly deal with it. We're going to stop believing that we can fix ourselves so we're going to more quickly turn to Jesus for forgiveness and transformation. Sin is a condition, not a behavior. So repentance is a lifestyle, not just an occasional practice. Sin is a condition, not a behavior. Repentance is a lifestyle, not an occasional practice. And repentance, as Paul says in Colossians, is ongoing. It's not something that we do only once when we're converted or something we only do periodically when we feel really, really guilty. But repentance is the pruning shear. It is the thing that tends the garden so that true gospel fruit can grow. Repentance is ongoing. Conviction of sin is a mark of God's fatherly love for us. As Paul said in verse 6 of Colossians 2, Therefore, as you received Christ, so walk in him. So, how do we leave this morning not being feel like we're just slapped around and beat up because of our sinfulness? Look, in the pursuit of holiness, Christians are tempted to dwell too much on their own sins and forget the kindness of their Heavenly Father. Think through the logic. We know that God hates sin. And although we fight sin in ourselves, no matter how hard we try, we're always going to find a lamentable degree of remaining sin on this side of heaven. Therefore, God must be perpetually disappointed with me, right? No. Here's the key. Fighting sin is not God against us. Fighting sin is ultimately God's battle, a battle that we have been caught up into. We fight with God in sanctification. Listen, 
No one is more engaged in our holiness than God is. No one cares more about our personal holiness than God does. A point made obvious by the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. So listen, our pursuit of holiness can happen. We can act the miracle because God is for us and with us and in us. We fight sin in the employment of God and his purposes. The final victory is certain. Amen. So look, we need to walk with Jesus now the same way we came to Jesus then. Knowing the truth of the gospel, seeing the interplay between God's holiness and our sinfulness will allow us to know with humble confidence that our boasting is not in our grip of Jesus, but in his grip of us. This then frees us to honestly repent of our sins and receive God's mercy and forgiveness in Christ. Our repentance is not somber penance, as if God might not forgive us this time. It's joyful, knowing that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And because of this, we teach and reteach and reteach this to ourselves in our lives, in our marriages, in our small groups, so that we are re- reminded that though we have gospel amnesia, God has not forgotten us. Though we stumble, God will not let us fall. Though we are weak, he is strong. And therefore we can boast. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding, in thanksgiving. Let's pray. So Jesus, this is where we need your help. Would you open our eyes to see you as more beautiful and believable than all the things this world has to offer? All the false gospels that we have tried to believe in that have left us empty and wanting. Help us to see the majesty of your holiness, the fight for continued, um, the fight for continued fruit bearing in our lives, knowing that you have given us the tools, you live in us, and this is not a battle where we're waiting to see whether or not we got it right, but it's a battle you fight with us. Impress this upon our hearts as we close this day, for we pray it in your name. Amen.